Professors FM. Analytics with Mike Lewis, the podcast where we talk about everything you need to know about sports analytics. Here's your host, Mike Lewis, marketing professor at Emory University. Hey, welcome everyone. Welcome to the Fanalytics Podcast. My name is Mike Lewis, professor of marketing at Emory University. Uh, as always, we are brought to you by the Emory Marketing Analytics Center, and I am joined by Mr. Doug Battle. How are you, Doug? I'm doing well, Mike. I uh, I'm looking at my fantasy score right now, and I'm playing my brother. And he and I, it's it's embarrassing. We're in this league with a bunch of friends from our hometown, and he and I are the bottom two teams. It's just it's like we're not representing the family well. But we've both been decimated by injuries. But uh, we're in a very low scoring battle here, kind of reminiscent of Georgia football. Just a lot not, of defense. That is not embarrassing. That is shameful to me. This is a sports <laughs> analytics podcast. I know that's what like I'm supposed to be that guy. I mean, I, I'm not. I'm going to stop making excuses. I've made the same excuse every week. It's. It is. I'm ashamed on behalf of analytics and in my role here, and I just want to apologize to you. Well, I, I think last week we talked a little bit about uh, fantasy football, and you know, I, I think you mentioned that you were using the ESPN projections, and <laughs> and I guess there is a lesson in there in terms of that you should you should do better. Um, you should be pulling data. Building models, uh, locating your your hidden biases in all of this, <laughs> and um, dominating that league. But yeah, what, what can we a, do? This is an outlier year for me. I promise, Mike. It's uh, you put injuries never happen. I'm I'm sitting on top of the rankings this year, so it's just we're making do with what we got. And uh, I'm gonna I'm gonna do better next year for analytics. I mean, this is this is purely anecdotal. But a, a few years ago, we used to teach the sports because I was co-teaching it at the time. It was actually a couple other professors. And we, we taught the sports analytics class in the fall semester, which gave us the great opportunity of actually running a fantasy football league yes. throughout, the, throughout the term. And it was sort of shocking that the two teams that did the best, this was uh, included grad students and undergrad students at Emory, tended to be the two most analytical uh, the two most analytically oriented teams in terms of the people actually pulling data and running and running models and building forecasting systems. It was one of those kind of very happy, you know, you, you can also imagine that it could also go the opposite direction, the people actually pulling the numbers, finishing dead last. All right. But it is an, <laughs> it's an interesting data point in that, you know, these fantasy football leagues, I'm kind of getting the sense that they've all evolved. I don't play this stuff. Uh, that they've all evolved to people all having the same information. And so, More again, less, yeah. we're kind of in this quest for inefficiencies or marketing inefficiencies that you can exploit to to win these leagues. Yeah, in my experience, it's really been about who puts in the most time because most people are using the same information. Um, but there's things like when the waivers open up, like for free agency, and some people are up at like four in the morning to make sure they get the top guys. And I used to be that guy, and I used to to run the league, but I've gotten a little <laughs> lazy with fantasy football, and it shows. So it really is, it really is like kind of an effort thing um, at this point with everyone using more or less the same data and in the same way. And so I think most of the like outside research that I'll do is before the draft when I'm trying to find like 
you know, maybe a rookie running back that's going to pop off or um, a diamond in the rough, if you will. But once the season gets going and you just, I don't know, it's, it's, you could, you could spend as much time as you want <laughs> on the analytical side of just your fantasy football team, but I've gotten where I, I don't spend that much time. Well, I'll give you a, a little tip, and it's not like this is actually going to reduce the, it's not like this is going to reduce the effort down to zero. The effort would still probably be difficult. But there's a, it's kind of this old technique that I think has largely been forgotten as the world has moved towards machine learning and AI, whatever those terms mean. Um, and, and I, you know, I, I say that because I, these terms are, these terms are flexibly used. Let's say, but one of the one of the best ways to do these kind of tasks is to actually gather information from all sorts of sources. So let's say you've got a forecast on points that are going to be scored from ESPN, but maybe you also got one from Fox Sports and you got one from DraftKings. And I, literally, I don't know where the who's who's publishing this kind of thing. And you simply put all those pieces of data into a file and then build a simple statistical model that tells you how to balance those forecasts. Um, and that tends to be a very easy and very effective way to to beat the crowd by using the crowd of models that may be out there. Is that a little technical for a Monday morning? It's pretty straightforward. Okay. Um, yeah, so I might, might have to look into this. The problem is like when I'm looking at free agents to pick up on my team because everyone's hurt is I'm – I have to look at so many different players, and so it might be time-consuming to do that for like a hundred players. Yeah, but, you you would need a system where you could download the you know, let's say there's a key number for each to download that yeah. key number for each of the systems, and then right build in the host. So it's not an error, it's not an effort-free approach, but it's comparatively a lot easier than going into you know, footballreference.com and building a massive database and getting into the, the underlying <laughs> analytics. Yeah, but I'll say this. My, my favorite, I was in a wedding yesterday, so I, I didn't get to watch many or much NFL football, but I will say the Javon Wims um, punch to C.J. Gardner-Johnson, I don't know if you saw that, but that really made my day as a Georgia fan going into Georgia-Florida week. Okay, so I, I didn't see it. So what happened? Yeah, so Javon Wims, wide receiver for the Chicago Bears, beloved Georgia Bulldog. He's got a great story. He actually, I think he only played football his senior year of high school, and so he went and played Juco for like two years and then came to Georgia and like rode the bench for a year and then like broke out as Georgia's number one receiver the year they made the national championship. And so he got drafted, went to the Bears, and uh, he was playing in a game against the Saints, and one of their defensive backs is C.J. Gardner-Johnson, who formerly played for the Florida Gators. Um, Georgia and Florida play each other this week, and it's Georgia-Florida hate week. And in this game, Gardner-Johnson on one play, it looked like he ripped out Wim's mouthpiece after the play when they were jawing. Like he reached in his helmet and ripped it out and threw it on the ground. In the next play, Wims ran his route, defended by a completely different DB. And then when the play was done, he walked over to Johnson and just stood like square, like they were just staring at each other. And then he just punched him in the face. <laughs> and then Johnson didn't do anything. He looked kind of confused and he kind of like looked to the side, like, are they going to throw a flag? And then Wims punched him again. And then he just like kept punching him. And then a bunch of Saints players like took Wims to the ground and were like trying to hold him back or whatever. But 
it became a meme. And so people started doing it. You can imagine Photoshopping on uh, different faces for the players. So like Trump and Biden or um, I don't know, different coaches. You know, one of them was, uh, was Bill Belichick punching Cam Newton after his performance yesterday. So it, it was kind of the meme of the day in the NFL. And I got a kick out of it, especially with it being Georgia Florida week. Okay, so that uh, I think that brings us to maybe our core topic for this week. It's uh, you know we, we're well you know for those of you guys listening tomorrow, this is uh, we're recording Monday the second. Of course, tomorrow is election day, and so if there is a theme for this week, well, it, maybe we should say tomorrow is the start of a ele- of ballot counting week, perhaps. <laughs> Gosh, but. You know, the, 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 so maybe the theme for this week is leadership. You mentioned the Bears and the Saints. The Bears, you know, in some ways it's kind of remarkable how much attention the Bears quarterback position gets year over year. Mm-hmm. Uh, Mitchell Trubisky has been a story for multiple seasons now. Should have picked someone else. Uh, benched after a few games this year to Nick Foles and now discussion of maybe going back to Mitchell Trubinsky. I, I tend to think that this is very much the, the the year of the quarterback in terms of most of the stories. There's a lot of fascinating quarterback stories throughout the league. Um, you know, Drew Brees, I, I saw a statistic that his first, you know, dozen completions or so were all less than five yards. And so there's uh, all sorts of interesting stuff going on. I, I mean, going back to uh, the Bears and potentially this idea of switching quarterbacks, switching between quarterbacks that neither of them seems to be performing, just seems. Uh, well, I mean, what do you what do you think of that? Yeah, it's been like this for seemingly forever for the Bears. When was the last time they really had their guy at quarterback? I would say Jim McMahon was the the last time that it was fairly. I mean. It, you know, even, I think some fans will go back on me, but I think the only time where it felt settled was Jim McMahon. Yeah, even the last time they made the Super Bowl, it was Rex Grossman, mm-hmm. who was not very good, um, and, and they just had a phenomenal defense that year, as is typically the case in Chicago when they have good teams. Um, yeah, Trubitsky versus Nick Foles. I mean, Foles is kind of a career backup slash, like, he's... De- definitely one of the better career backups in the NFL. Uh, He can go in and and win a big game for you (laughs) as we've seen. Um, Trubitsky, I was never high on him. I watched him play in person in college. Um, He's he's one of those guys who's got all the measurables. He's a big big guy and I don't think he's ever going to be a legitimate top 10 or top 15 NFL quarterback. I really don't. So I think Chicago is going to be back to the drawing board pretty soon here. But, I mean, they're kind of stuck in quarterback purgatory as they have been in the last 20 years, it seems. Yeah, I mean, you know, back to the drawing board. And like I said, I think there's a lot of interesting stories out there. You know, the um, the NFC East in itself is a, kind of an amazing story. You know, the... yeah. <laughs> You know, the, the NFL's ratings are down. Last number I saw was about 15, 14% for the season. That was for the, through the first five weeks. Yeah. Part of that may well be the fact that, I don't know, what are the Giants 1-6, and six, the Eagles are the class of the division at 3-4, and four, everyone else has won two games. You know, I, I'm not even going to keep it straight. But the, 
it, it, and it's not like the Cowboys were rolling over folks before Dak Prescott, but talk about a talk about a collapse and an interesting one where you know, like the Bears, are the Cowboys now in a position where you have to think about tearing it all down and starting over, mostly because you lost your your quarterback, your leader. Yeah, I actually think for the Cowboys, it's not the worst situation. Obviously, it's disappointing for Dak Prescott. Uh, there's no getting around that. But for the franchise as a whole, unless they're going to win a Super Bowl, I mean, it's like this for any team. Unless you're going to win a Super Bowl, it's almost better to just crumble and tank. And <laughs> a team like that where they still have a lot of nice pieces in place um, where if they end up with a big draft pick, they can really think about – they can either think about – drafting someone like Justin Fields or, or Trevor Lawrence and um, trading away Dak when he's healthy. Or if they feel good about Dak, they can trade that pick for, I mean, that is probably going to be one of the most valuable first number one picks in, in years with kind of guaranteed superstars, it seems, this year in this class. It's not always the case. Um, so I don't think it's the worst situation for the Cowboys as a Giants fan I'm actually a little more concerned um thankfully the Giants are <laughs> are in a similar position even with our quarterback playing uh where we we may be in a higher draft seat than the Cowboys but if the Cowboys were to for real tank for the number one pick or number two pick um I think the NFC East the other teams in the NFC East would be pretty concerned about that more so than if the Cowboys slipped into the playoffs with like the eight seed. Well, and I think what's tough about all this right now is suddenly, you know, and I think Jerry Jones and the Cowboys thought they may have had enough for some years of contention and, you know, Super Bowl runs. Now they are looking at a situation where, you know, what's the probability Dak comes back as an effective player, let alone as a superstar, Ezekiel Elliott, running backs quickly put on mileage yep. in terms of, yeah. of carries. And let's say you do go the, you know, you go full in and you try and draft one of these elite prospects. Are they developed in time that everyone is sort of reaching their peak at the same time? And and so suddenly now, you know, the, the key word for the Cowboys over the next few years is going to be kind of uncertainty in, in playing percentages. Yeah, I think so. I definitely think you raised a good point about Ezekiel Elliott because he's he's been a top five back since he's been in the NFL. Some would argue that he's been the top back in those years. Um, but a guy like him is the more mileage, you know, it's like a car taken off the lot. It's like he depreciates every time he touches the rock. Um, and of course he could have a career like Adrian Peterson where he does it for a lot of years, but that would be more of an exception than the rule itself. And so you think about that, you think about Dak and where he's at. Um, defense isn't particularly great right now. So I don't know how, how, Good, they can feel about contending next year in in future years with what they've got. Um, so they they really may rethink everything and, and start thinking about all right, maybe we build around someone else and then start to build kind of a new team here. So it'll be interesting to see. Um, hey, while I'm on that subject, I, I do want to mention um, of building a new team. Philadelphia 76ers hired Daryl Morey in their front office. As I believe he's director of basketball operations, so he's not GM. 
but they they just are an interesting one to me because uh you know we talked a few weeks back about what are they going to do with ben simmons and joel and bead they hired doc rivers and so we kind of talked well maybe they're going to keep them and try to make one last run now they're bringing in the uh, the father of basketball analytics and daryl morey who stepped down from the houston rockets earlier this offseason and to me that's a really interesting story that's kind of uh flown under the radar this summer or this offseason i'm used to saying summer but for the nba offseason <laughs> Yeah, it is interesting. Um, you know, and, and and in some ways, what the Sixers have done now, bringing in, you know, in some ways they've so they brought in more and they brought in Doc Rivers from other situations that almost appear better than the situation that the Sixers have. To me, that's what's kind of fascinating about the, yeah. this direction. Um, yeah, you know, I mean, the, the Sixers are, I, I think you can make a case that they are one of the more interesting franchises over the last few years, you know, going all the way back to, of course, the the process and process. now trying to, I mean, it, it's always kind of fascinating, the idea of like sort of building on the non-player side in, in terms of that, that infrastructure, because you, you, you seldom see that done in a real public manner. Yeah, I just think, It'll be interesting to see what Daryl Morey does with this team because he's he's made some bold moves over the years. Some of the more bold moves in the league with the Rockets uh, acquiring Russell Westbrook, Chris Paul. I mean, all the moves they did to build around and even bringing in James Harden from the Thunder way back when. So he, he's been aggressive with moves. I know that part of the reason Doc came to the Sixers is because of his this, the talent that they have with players like Embiid players like Ben Simmons. Um, and I think this is a team that we know a year ago they were a shot away from essentially making the finals in a finals that the team they lost to won, um, having lost to the the Raptors. And then this year were, you know, an early exit from the playoffs, but they were banged up. And they're just a, they're such a fringe team. They're right on the fringe of like not making the playoffs, but they're also kind of on the cusp of, winning a championship and so bringing in a coach like doc and then a really bold um, front office exec and daryl morey makes me real curious to see what's going to happen with that franchise moving forward this year i think that's the right word kind of curious um because i think that's you know that kind of nails it down as they become this uh kind of question mark going into going into the season (laughs) going into the season and look, there, there's another interesting question, right? Uh, I, I think they're are they still talking about a December 22nd start date of the of the NBA season? So uh, doesn't sound, you know, to me that sort of sounds kind of distant in the future until I realize, well, hey, it's November 2nd, mm-hmm. and I think the uh, when's the season end? About two weeks ago at this point. And if yeah. we have a December 22nd start, I think that means training camp has got to start in, uh, you know, let's let's call it December 1st, which seems really kind of bang, bang for teams to reformulate for, for the draft, uh, integrate the rookies, reformulate the rosters, and then get basketball on TV before... Um, you know, as families gather at the holidays and, and start this uh, show up again one more time. Yeah, it's crazy because typically opening night is 
Halloween or the week of Halloween. And so we're in a normal year. Basketball is just starting up right now. Um, and that's why my calendar for everything is so thrown off because I, I kind of base my calendar around sports as many <laughs> sports um, fanalists do. And yeah, basketball starting in December. So teams like the Lakers just finished an exhausting run and they got to get ready for training camp here pretty soon. So be interesting. I think there will be pretty big implications of that uh, this season coming up. I think teams that are positioned well to compete are the teams that that had early exits but that have a ton of talent. So you look at the Brooklyn Nets with Durant and Kyrie having those extra months to get healthy. Um, and, I mean, their whole team was hurt. So they, they really needed that time. Obviously, the Golden State Warriors uh, coming in with, of course, Steph Curry, Klay Thompson coming off of injury, uh, Andrew Wiggins, and then they've got one of the top picks in the draft, which they may trade for for a star or they may bring in a guy. But um, I feel like those teams are going to be, or I guess, going to have a special opportunity with some of the other contenders coming off really long playoff stretches that that may have them fatigued or, or just exhausted. Well, even you know. I, I think we're also going to move into an era. And look, this this has been this this has been an ongoing trend. Um, I I tend to think we when it, where it first became fairly public was when players started to say, "Hey, you know, my team's only playing in the blue bonnet bowl in the college football." Of course, I'm yeah. not going to play in that because of you know I'm, I'm now focused on the NFL draft and. You know, we've got the infamous term load management where Zion can only play 14, 14 minutes and 37 seconds in each game and then has to shut it down. Yeah, well, we, we referenced Ezekiel Elliott, right? I mean, and in some ways, it's, you know, you get into the question of when does Ezekiel Elliott say, you know what? I don't want to carry the ball 30 times when we are going, you know, when we're going to win four games in a, in a given season. And so with this quick NBA turnaround, well, here, you know, the obvious question, does LeBron James feel like showing up for a December 22nd game after the 2019-2020 season? Yeah, and I think the NBA is going to, have to be pretty hard on that. I know they've they've tightened up on load management over the years. <laughs> I mean, the bottom line is, I guess it's different now without fans in the stadiums. But there's years where people buy their tickets ahead of the season. Those tickets are not cheap, um, and I can imagine, you know, buying tickets for your kid to go see his favorite player, LeBron James, in months ahead of time. And then that being one of the games that LeBron decides to sit out that year just to rest his legs and having spent $300 for, for you and your kid mm-hmm. to go. Um, and and so I think f- for fans, it's a big issue. For players, it's not. That's no big deal to them. And so the league's in a, in a tough position where they need to find a way to incentivize players to play as many games as possible, even though it may not be in their best interest competitively. Okay, so this, um, you know, it's like that. So then the question becomes, like I said, we are taping this on uh, November 2nd. Uh, We'll drop it out there November 3rd. Obviously, November 3rd, we referenced it already, the start to the week of vote counting. Mm -hmm. The, um, 
the biggest American sports or competitive story has, of course, been the heavyweight bout between Joe Biden and Donald Trump. So how much of a stomach do you have to sort of dance around this third rail of mm. politics? And and look, it's to me, it's a legitimate story for what we do here. Yeah. Uh, Donald Trump obviously has a core of fans. I'm not sure that uh, Joe Biden has so much as a... I, I don't know that Joe Biden has any real fans, but there is, of course, you know, you, you referenced in, in passing that it is Georgia, Florida hate week. Mm-hmm. And so this is actually Donald Trump love versus hate week in terms of election 2020. Yeah, I think so. Uh, and for those listening... Uh, please don't <laughs> take anything I say as a political stance. I just want to observe this on the podcast and uh, not you know, say anything too crazy. But um, I really like how John Mulaney put it on Saturday Night Live. On Saturday, he was hosting. He's one of my favorite comedians. And uh, he mentioned that there's, oh, yeah, they want, <laughs> they want me to make an announcement. There is going to be an old man competition on Tuesday. And you're going to vote for your favorite old man. And... One, we might keep our favorite old man or we might get a new old man in the position of favorite old man. But that's what's happening on Tuesday. Um, if from Yeah, from an analytics standpoint, it's super, super interesting because polls, and we've talked about this before, polls have heavily favored Joe Biden. Uh, there's still a camp of people that believe the polls are biased or skewed. Um, there's another camp of people, and to me this is a more... Uh, I guess, believable angle um, that believe that the nature of of this election and the nature of the candidates skews it toward Joe Biden um, with so many silent Trump voters or, or quiet people who, who don't necessarily want to be publicly associated with Donald Trump, but that do vote for him due to, um, I guess, liking him better than the other candidate or whatever reason those people vote. And so um, it's going to be interesting to see if like in 2016, if those polls predict the right or wrong outcome, obviously 2016, it was wrong. And and there's people that really doubt the polls now. And and I think this year will be a big, uh, it'll be big for people's trust of, of such polls and moving forward. And uh, I guess on the analytics side, just kind of readjusting how we analyze these situations. That's a good way to, good way to start it. Um, and I'll, I'll, I'll admit, you know, I like to be able to sort of wrap when we talk about some of the analytics out there and look, you know, I mean, ESPN has developed an amazing analytics capacity in terms of the the data feeds where you know they'll do stuff where you know projecting out who's going to win a game and having the moving forecast throughout the entire game you know of course based this based on the score of the game the position of the ball sort of looking at historical trends and putting you know putting a projection out there it's it's kind of crazy right the idea yeah, i that, love that that uh, you know, Team A has a 17% chance of winning the game, and this moves up to 30 after they score. You know, it's and in some ways, this is what has happened with with politics now, and and this really goes back to 538, and you know, and and for those of you that are kind of more casual observers about this, 
the 538 stuff is not particularly complex. What it is really about is combination of combination of different data set sources and essentially weighting of those data sources using something called Bayesian statistics. The flaw potentially in all of this stuff, and this is kind of a, you know, let's try, I'll try and keep this intuitive for a second. You know, the, the problem in statistical models, using them to project the future is something that people call out-of-range forecasting. And typically when they say out-of-range forecasting, they're talking about applying a model to a different circumstance of, of the data. But all statistical forecasts are out of range of the data because they're moving into the because they're moving into the future, right? They're mm-hmm. trying to project things based on past information. And, and and so, you know, things like political polls are based on guesses as to the composition of the electorate in terms of how many Democrats there are, how many Republicans, the percentages of women that are going to vote versus men. And, and so when you're going through a I'll call this a cultural inflection point with candidates that or one candidate that uniquely inspires passion or hate. The question becomes how much of that is in fact worth worth looking at and how much of that continues to be valid. I, I don't remember the the source, but I saw something that it, it was a little blurb talking about over senior, senior voters. And the the punchline essentially was that if you ask senior voters who they're going to vote for, and I'm getting these numbers wrong, but if you just directly ask them on the phone, maybe Biden has a 3% advantage. But if you allow them to fill out a form so there isn't another human being asking them the question, then suddenly Trump was up 10 points. Wow. Right. And this is this is nothing. This is nothing new in terms of survey research. Mm-hmm. Um, it, it's a well-known fact, right? That if I ask someone, you know, a question, then suddenly there's a, a peer effect. The person doesn't want to create a problem, right? They essentially want to give me what I, you know, they, they want to take the less controversial. A lot of people want to take the less controversial approach. Yeah, and. And put and put that out there. When suddenly it's you know what are they actually thinking and it's anonymous, then sometimes these things really really change dramatically. Yeah, that's that's very interesting. Um, going back to what you were saying about using past data to predict the future uh, when you're in a completely different situation, I think that I mean my mind immediately went to sports and in, in the draft. And looking at guys like Patrick Mahomes or Stephen Curry, guys that were very unique and unlike anything the league had seen before and trying to project what happens with them in the league based on what's happened with some more um, traditional type players or, or traditional body types or traditional athletes. And people didn't know what to do with them. And so, you know, it was kind of a mixed bag on on like a guy like Mahomes. Some people thought he would be the best. Some people thought... He would be a bust and wouldn't even be a backup. Uh, Stephen Curry, a lot of people thought he was too small because most guys his size don't perform at a high level in in the NBA, even though they do in college. Um, And so it's interesting to me with, I think going back to 2016, it's like we were predicting what would happen with Trump based on what had happened with 
people who were very much not like Trump because the closest thing to Trump in the past was nothing close to Trump as far as his personality, as far as his um, his approach politically and, and campaigning. And so, you know, this year's a little bit different because Trump's more of a known commodity than he was at the time. But like you said, there's there's a lot of factors that, that play into um, how people respond to polling and um, the kind of the peer effect that you were talking about is is really interesting to me. And I think I think it's going to be fascinating to see what happens. Obviously, I mean, the hope is for a clear outcome that isn't super controversial. And I mean, it could really get messy. <laughs> with, that doesn't, with, does that seem remotely possible to you the way the year has gone, though? No, that, I mean that's what that's what concerns me uh, because of I just can't imagine how how that goes. But we're getting pretty close to uh, to finding out. Well, and look, there's a it's um you know there's almost a deeper analytics story in all this. In that you know if the polls are to break down, and and like I said, you know who who knows? We'll we'll know we'll know later in the week, hopefully. Um, you know, but maybe we won't know for a couple of weeks, but, you know, we, we come back to this notion of, you know, like, so how do you, how do you figure out what's going to happen? Right. I mean, that's in some ways, that's the core of analytics in very simple terms. And in something like an election, well, you, you call people and, and you ask people, then the question becomes, is that system going to going to break down over time and so we've got this idea of like people don't want to say people don't want to say that they're voting for the bad orange man so maybe they'll keep that to themselves mm-hmm. we've got people that and look i mean the the old joke about polling has always been hey have you ever responded to a poll from uh, on, on politics and told someone who you're going to vote for if i ask that question in a class of 50 students you know, maybe one hand will go up. So we do have this fundamental question of who's actually self-selecting to answer these things. So I mean, there's always been these elements that make it kind of that make it kind of shaky. Now, as some of these, you know, look, we live in a very strange culture, and it's nothing that I'm actually a, a fan of. One of the minor sports stories of last week, though maybe it's a major story if you think about the culture as a whole is that Jack Nicholas endorsed Donald Trump and Twitter rained down hell on Jack Nicholas mm-hmm. right i mean there's there's your there's your lesson your your first lesson in terms of why people might might not want to speak out in favor of yeah of one particular candidate the question becomes you know as we move to this very hyper partisan environment is that kind of data source going to be of particular value going Forward, or is the polling, which is part of, let's say, the market research apparatus, is that going to be effective? And, and to bring it back to a sports analogy, in some ways, right, if there's a fundamental change in, uh, you know, if you've got these forecasts of which team's going to win a league, but you drop a dramatically different rule in it, you know, how good are those forecasts? Um, we pay so much attention to polling in this country. That there's and look, I don't know how much people talk about this. There's almost even a danger in polling, right? In that when the message goes out there that Biden is winning by ten points, how does that actually affect the election, 
right? Yeah. I mean, it, it yeah. has some impact. Does it discourage Trump voters? Does it fire up Trump voters? But so there's just so many of these unknowns. And, and look, every cycle, it seems like we get more and more of these polls and now more and more of these of these projections. Yeah, I think that the last point you raise is really interesting because I think if if it's a close or if it's perceived to be close based on polls, it incentivizes as many people as possible to vote. Um, when it feels like one candidate has the lead, you feel like either people are going to give up and say, well, he's going to win, I'm not going to go vote, or people on that candidate's side. So let's say right now with Joe Biden, um, maybe they get too comfortable. And maybe that's what happened with Hillary Clinton. And, and you lose some votes um, from people that just think they got it in the bag and their vote's not going to matter. So super interesting uh, to think about the ramifications of polling and, and how they might affect this election. And I, I mean, we'll find out. One thing that's interesting to me that I read about last week was it, this was kind of a defense of the polls in, in the Hillary Clinton election. And... Uh, the gentleman who wrote this article is essentially saying the perception is that these polls were off or that they were wrong. Um, and in a sense they are in that the, the candidate that they favored um, lost the election. But let's say, for example, let's say if they gave Hillary a 90% chance based on the polls or a 70% chance or whatnot, that's, that's also saying there's a 10% or 30% chance that Trump wins it. Right. And so, um, you know, it's 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 giving him a chance. It's there's still an opening there, and that's saying one in ten times this is going to happen. And it just so happened in this in this defense, it just so happened this was with that one in ten times. Yeah, well, you know, I just pulled up the real clear politics average on this, um, which seems to be the standard for all these news organizations these days. And so going into tomorrow, Biden is up 51 to Trump 44. Wow. You know, another fascinating thing about all this is, and again, we'll, we'll continue to make sports analogies to all this just to annoy people, if nothing else, that <laughs> what if you end up with a scenario where, well, you know, let, let's say the polls are off by that there's some bias in these from undercounts or, uh, you know, from folks not answering the phone. Let's say there's a 2% swing, which means that Trump essentially runs the table on the, on the swing states, which means that he wins the Electoral College. But unlike in the past where, you know, where uh, Hillary wins the popular vote by, let's say, 1%, Biden wins the popular vote by 5%, but loses the election. Mm -hmm. Does that create something a push you know what would the sports analogy be to that that uh somehow the um one team outscored the other team by you know 30 points but the other team won it on some sort of technical fluke right <laughs> well i mean of, i think the closest yeah. actual sports analogy that would happen would be <laughs> when one team has more like let's let's make this football okay more yards more first downs, yeah. uh, more, maybe more touchdowns, um, more forced turnovers, more, you know, they, they beat them across the stat sheet in every aspect of the game. They beat them except for the final score. And I've seen that happen in multiple sports. That happens in basketball. You see one team with, uh, you know, maybe they had 
more points in the paint, more threes, more rebounds, and somehow lost the game. And and yeah, I I think that's the best equivalent I can make um, with sports. And I wouldn't be too shocked to see that happen because it happened to a degree with with Hillary Clinton. And I mean, that's another thing that's interesting with these polls is I mean, when they say fifty one to forty four um, Biden over Trump, you know the that gives you a general picture, but when you break it down, okay, well, what about by county and what about by state? And it's it's a little bit of a different game when you look at it that way. Well, let me throw one more thing out there. And this is the thing that I find really fascinating in the last week of this. And I could be I could be wrong. I, you know, we all have we all have biases. To me, the strange thing is, and I think five thirty eight. I think the general consensus is that it's about a 75-80% odds of a Biden victory. And again, I don't know how worthwhile these forecasts are, right? It's not like we we get a lot of data and we can train the models and we actually see what they how good they are. We have one of these elections every four years. But I will say this in terms of how the candidates are acting, and again, this could be very much a Trump personality effect, I almost see more confidence on the on the Trump side. And then you add into the fact these these massive uh, rallies, and there is this kind of strange signal out there related to enthusiasm and confidence that seems at odds with the polling information, which I think leads everyone, even if you're sort of really kind of trust the science of the polling and the statistics, to kind of throw your throw everyone everyone's throwing their hands up and going, we're just going to have to see what happens. Yeah, and I I mean, I think we're at that point, right? Tomorrow is, and the day that this episode releases is is election day, um, as they say, although it might be election month or week or whatever. I don't know, but... The final week of, yeah. Yeah, so, well, I mean, we'll see what happens. I think, like you said, it, like this is such an interesting look on on polling and uh, the effect of polling and the accuracy of polling as well. Okay, Doug. So Doug, as we move to the end here, what are you looking forward to in sports this week? Um, you know, I'm going to actually, I'm going to reframe that question so I can answer it differently. Go so ahead. what are you looking for in fandom this week uh, with fanalytics? Because we, we, we cover all fandom and man, I'll tell you what. I'm looking forward to episode two of season two of The Mandalorian. Big Star Wars guy over here. That's probably the biggest fandom in the world. Um, so I'm, I'm excited for that. Georgia plays Florida. Uh, I don't know if you kept up this week at all with either team, but we might see like the B team version of both teams playing. Georgia's All-American safety got in a motorcycle accident, uh, and they got about five or six starters injured in their last game. Florida got in a brawl at halftime of their game, and they're likely to have a number of players and potentially their head coach suspended. So that game, I'm like a little bit less excited about as I was before, especially the way Georgia's been playing. Um, but Mandalorian, like it has not let me down yet, and it's like something I can count on as a Star Wars fan. Okay, and I probably shouldn't go down this path, but what is the for someone that checked out of Star Wars uh, during the infamous Jar Jar Binks era, uh, yes, what exactly is the mallet? Say it again. Mandalorian. Mandalorian. 
Yes, uh, Mando. Is that, is that baby Yoda somehow? <laughs> so it's not. It's the same species as Yoda, um, but it, <laughs> and and obviously the people frequently call it baby Yoda. Although Disney has tried so hard to brand it as the child, the child, and they'll sell like the child poster, or the child doll, and everyone I know calls it baby Yoda because like how do you not call it baby Yoda? It's baby Yoda, um, even if it's not technically Yoda as a baby. Um, <laughs> But anyway, Mandalorian is a uh, essentially a bounty hunter. Um, he he wears the same kind of armor. It's familiar to Star Wars fans from the original movies that, if you remember the character uh, Boba Fett, um, who was a bounty hunter that that captured Han Solo in Empire Strikes Back. Um, same armor and uh, but different guy. And yeah, he's a bounty hunter that he ended up. Uh, you know, hunting down this child and bringing it to some people and then realizing that they were up to no good with it and it was an innocent child. And he's supposed to be like stone cold and heartless, but he uh, apparently has a soft spot for the child, which is baby Yoda. And so he, he in season one, ran off with uh, with baby Yoda, went rogue, and, and he's got the whole galaxy of bounty hunters chasing him now. Um, and he's fighting them all off. And I think in season two, they're trying to find a home for for the child. And so he's still in the process of protecting it um, and also kind of on a quest for finding his people so he can be raised by his own kind. Well, you know what? This is a perfect story in terms of the world of fandom. I, you know, my understanding is this malad. <laughs> Mandalorian. <laughs> Mandalorian. Obviously, you guys can tell how into this I am. That the Mandalorian is a big part of entertainment, but you know, when you're on the when you're on the outside, it's tough to it, it's tough to relate. I'll just I'll, I'll leave it at that. Yeah. Um, uh, I will say this. So you know, as we are getting ready for today's episode, you know, the the theme of leadership is the idea that caught my mind with with the election this week. Uh, the other thought that sort of was invading my head was the importance of hope, and I and I think that's something to talk about in in a, in a later episode. And the reason I say hope is, you know, my my team in Illinois is zero two, and it's been a rough uh it's been a rough couple of dec- decades in in fact with a f- very few bright spots and it, it is an interesting thing to me how how my fandom is affected by cuz it's not just a couple of losses to start the season it's when you're going into it with a certain kind of expectation and then that expectation is confirmed and reinforced and just how damaging that can be to mm-hmm. To fandom, but with that being said, you know I'm going to keep rooting for the Illini because that's what we do as fans who are in the Illini are facing off against the Minnesota Golden Golden Gophers. So go Illini, go dogs, and go Mando. <laughs>